0: all right welcome to episode 63 of seize the moment podcast and today we're joined by dr alan levinowitz he's an author and associate professor of religion at james madison university his latest book is called natural how faith in nature's goodness leads to harmful fads unjust Laws, and flawed science and also look out for his podcast shift available at shiftpodcast.co welcome alan
1: thanks for having me pleasure to be here
2: yeah. And we're so happy to have you. Mm-hmm. And so I guess before we begin about, and we, before we begin talking about the sort of scientific conception of what it means to be natural and unnatural, what did you, um, I guess, what sparked the book? Did you feel like there was something wrong with the popular conception of how we kind of view the words natural and unnatural?
1: I did. Absolutely. My first book way back, way back, gosh, four years ago, I don't know how long was, was about food and mm-hmm. how people's attitudes towards food today, even though, cloaked in science, actually have a lot of resemblances with religious attitudes towards food. So food taboos, cleanliness, purity versus impurity. And as I was researching and writing that book, I talked to people about their dietary preferences. And again and again, the word natural would come up. And it didn't matter if I was talking to a vegan or I was talking to a carnivore, I was talking to someone who liked eating carbs. I was talking to someone who didn't like eating carbs. They would always bring in this idea of naturalness as a justification for how they were eating. And I started to think to myself, well, what does this word mean? You know, here's a person drinking a smoothie that they've processed in a processing machine. They're putting protein powder in, you know, the most unnatural things you could imagine. And I I, I wondered why this word, this idea was so powerful. And as soon as I started thinking about it, I saw it everywhere not just in food. I saw it when people would talk about sexual activity. I saw it when people would talk about economic systems. I saw it when people would talk about how to take care of their kids and what kind of stuff to put on their faces. You couldn't get away from it. And so I came to believe that people were using this idea without fully understanding what it meant to them. And yet it was so powerful. And so I wanted to investigate that, deconstruct that idea of naturalness, and just get people and myself thinking about the history of that word. What is nature? What is naturalness? And why it's so powerful when we're t- trying to justify something.
0: Yeah. And, and why do we associate natural with good and unnatural with evil? Like, what's, what's that about? Where does, where does something like that come from?
1: It's right? something when I, when I first started writing the book or researching the book, mm. I went into it thinking I was going to be a tough debunker. This was going to be Richard Dawkins, but instead of religion, I was going to take on natural. And I was going to show people it was a meaningless term, yada, yada, yada. Not not so, it turns out. I changed my mind as I was researching the book. And one of the ways that I did change my mind was, was about what you're talking about with, with regards to why we think of natural as good and unnatural as bad. And for me, it came down to the simple fact that nature is incredible it's absolutely incredible it is so far beyond anything humans can do or conceive of nature made everything that came before us it made dinosaurs it made oceans it made mountains it and 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 i hesitate to say it made because nature is not an entity that wills things or doesn't will things but it is a force or a set of forces that come together to create I mean, miraculous stuff, for lack of a better word, really. So if you're religious or if you're not religious, it doesn't matter. Whatever nature is, whatever you associate it with, whether you think of it as secular or whether you think of it as some kind of outgrowth of a, of a deity, it's incredible. It's responsible for life and beauty and butterflies and plants and waterfalls. And so it makes a lot of sense to look at the things that were created by that, which include us and include our living, our live being, mm. and say to yourself, well, whatever that force made must be good. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I get that. Uh, the problem is that that force also, it does a lot of terrible stuff.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. And it's it's weird. Uh, would, would you consider, so technology comes from us, right? For instance, there's, there's something I've uh, thought about before. Like uh, ants make anthills, beavers make beaver dams, humans make technology, we make buildings, make all sorts of things, discoveries. And would you consider that uh, natural because it comes from us, uh, technically speaking, or is it not because we're just u- manipulating nature?
1: I wouldn't consider that natural. And I'll tell you why. Mm. In a certain, In a certain way, all definitions are arbitrary. And I understand that. And a lot of the more hardcore debunk nature people will say things like we're all stardust. Humans are animals. Anything we make is natural. It's all natural. Get out of here. I don't agree with that for the same reason that we don't look at animals and say that an animal is evil or an animal is good. We don't Mm -hmm. look at a dog and say that dog, that dog made a bad decision. We just, we, we distinguish in certain ways, and whether that makes sense or not is is a different conversation. I think it does, but we distinguish humans from other creatures. A part of that is the idea of humans having free will. And so for my purposes, and I think for the purposes of most people, a rough and ready definition of natural is that which has not been willed by humans. Mm -hmm. And unnatural is that which has been willed by humans. So if you think about humans themselves can do natural things, our instincts, our biology, the things that we don't choose, the things that we don't will or design, those are natural. And to the extent that things that we design or will are different from the things that emerge spontaneously out of the creative forces of nature, I think there's a reasonable distinction to be made there. After all, if you don't distinguish between what's natural and what's unnatural, then how does a conservationist distinguish between new york city and yellowstone park right there's no difference so right? you know that concert it makes no sense there's no difference between anything there's no why would you save nature there doesn't there is no there's no there's no thing to save if there is no difference between what's natural and what's unnatural so to me that spectrum of more or less natural Starting, you know, the most natural thing is stuff that was around before humans existed or things that humans have never touched. And the least natural things are the things that owe every feature of their organization mm-hmm. to the will of human beings. That's that's how I understand the distinction. I think it honestly makes a lot of sense.
0: I remember reading in your book, um, in relation to uh, the birthing process uh, for women, Uh, whether it's uh, a natural birth or let's say cesarean or if they undergo epidural or or something like that, why do you think there is a resistance to more modern methods um, to giving birth? Uh, Do do you think it has to do with just um, people not appreciating uh, newer technologies? Is it that they just value what's ancient and what's traditional and they just feel safer with that sort of idea? Uh, What do you think is going on?
1: it's a combination of all of those Mm. ideas that you mentioned naturalness a part of the value of of naturalness or nature is the is an origin story so one of the one of the forces built into nature the appeal of nature is that you're telling a story that goes back beyond before human beings that that something emerged spontaneously, organically, uh, from from organizing forces that have been around for millions, billions of years, that's incredibly magical and special. And part of what's going on with natural birth is a desire at this very important moment in your life when you become, when, when the person giving birth becomes very biological. I mean, it's really extraordinary for anyone who's had a child or for anyone who's, who's, you know, wife has had a child like mine. Um, you, it's incredible. It's totally bonkers. There's this, there's a, there is a human being being made inside of another human being. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And it's, and, and you're really in touch with just how miraculous pure natural biology can be. And so I understand I really do understand the desire to tap into this origin story that goes back hundreds of thousands of years of humans giving birth. There's also the other aspect of what you said, which is that for many people who romanticize natural birth, they are able to do it precisely because of all the unnatural technology that we have that has made childbirth safe. So it's great to have a natural birth if there's a hospital a couple of blocks away. It's great to have a natural birth in part because you don't know anyone who has died in childbirth. You you know, hopefully you don't know many people because maternal mortality is extraordinarily low and infant mortality is extraordinarily low compared to what it would have been 10,000 years ago. Not having that, those, those kinds of natural calamities around makes it easier to romanticize the natural. And that's a bit of a paradox there. And then the last thing I would say, and this applies not just to birth, but to the romanticization of natural in general, is that unnatural things are harder to understand or they feel harder to understand. I'm talking to you on Zoom through a computer, where I, I only know the very, the, the, the very basics of, what, of what's going on. I only vaguely understand how a circuit board or a chip work. And so there's a real alienation from unnatural things. I don't feel like I would be able to fix my, I know I would be able to fix my computer if it broke. I don't even understand how my microwave works. And that alienation is really disempowering. One of the words that I encountered when talking with, mothers about their desire for natural birth was the desire to be empowered. They didn't want some doctor or some kind of technology standing between them and their baby. And so naturalness provides a sense of empowerment that there isn't another human being or a kind of opaque technology between you and whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's giving birth or fishing or sailing, whatever it happens to be. So I think that's another really important factor
2: and then so but if nature and let's say natural non naturals if it exists on the spectrum right and are we then saying that some things that are natural are actually good for us or kind of a combination of good and bad and then other things are bad or some combination of bad and good
1: yeah there are there are there are natural things that are great there mm-hmm. are unnatural things that are terrible There the nuclear bomb unnatural very bad right. <laughs> natural <laughs> the, natural my eyeballs Natural and terrific. Uh, and I look at tiny print and now I have glasses, bad. The the problem is when we take natural and unnatural as proxies for good and bad, right. because there are many natural things that are terrible. And there are many unnatural things that are wonderful. People want simple ways to parse reality. They want easy binaries to divide the world into and the natural unnatural binary is one that not you know not to put too fine a point on it comes naturally and that's a problem because it it, the world does not divide up that way and natural and unnatural are not proxies for good and bad and in order to make good decisions personal decisions good decisions for the planet good decisions for our families it's essential to have an awareness of what it is that we value when we value what's natural and why that doesn't always line up with other things we value like health or freedom or beauty or whatever it happens to be.
0: Right. It's terribly complicated and it's very nuanced and it's, it's very important that we actually embrace the nuance as opposed to wanting those simple answers. Like it's either black or white, you know, uh, or you'll have some sort of uh, cognitive distortion, um, I think, did you want to uh, speak on that? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, in terms of cognitive distortions, right, uh, black and white thinking, mm-hmm. right? If things are either good or bad, uh, right or wrong, yes or no, all of that, right? And it's. And I heard you talk about this a little bit with Rogan, uh, which is that we need to, like I said before, we need to embrace nuance. We need to be able to have complicated conversations. We need to understand that maybe this aspect of eating, let's say eating, eating naturally is important to focus on, but it's not the uh, above all end-all you know, be-all. and sometimes new information will come out, and we need to embrace newer information and then adjust to that.
2: Right. And speaking of eating naturally. So, I mean, does nature in food consumption actually mean anything? Is it important to like have the term nature or natural on the
1: product? I think it is. And I used to be very, well, I don't know about, okay, I want to, I want to, I want to move back a little bit from that. I don't know about the way in which natural works as branding. Mm Mm-hmm. That is easily manipulated. It is a vague and meaningless term when we slap it on food. I think it needs to be regulated if it's going to go on food. Otherwise, you're just essentially lying to consumers. You put a picture of a, of a barn. You put natural. That's not what <laughs> yeah. it looks like. And it's funny. I actually, I don't know if I talked to. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but I go to these farmers in Manitoba, and I was in, in Canada, and they were they were asking me. They're saying, look everyone gets so mad when they see what our farms actually look like. They have these big combines, there's a computer screen in them. So people always think we've got these tiny tractors, <laughs> you know, it's all no, of course that hasn't been around for, for decades. And the reason people are disappointed is because they've been lied to about just basic food production. Even a small family farm honestly is, is, is a bigger operation than most people would imagine. So I don't, I don't like that aspect of the way in which the word natural distorts our understanding of what's actually going on with our food. That said, if by natural food, people mean food that is produced in a way that I can understand, or food that is Close to or closer to on this spectrum, all foods we eat are are gonna have been bred in some way. Plants are, are bred over time to be bigger, the fruits are bigger. So they're all unnatural in that sense, but I still think you can place food on that spectrum of more to less natural. And if what people mean is closer to unmanipulated by humans, I understand why people might prefer that in the same way that I. I value eating food that was grown near me. Not because it's healthier, not because necessarily, not because it's better for the economy, not because it's more sustainable. I value food that was grown near me because I think it's cool to be able to talk to the person that made my food. That's just intrinsically valuable. What a fun thing. Hey, man, loved your eggs. Cool. Want to buy some more (laughs) eggs? Yeah, I do. That's just a fun experience. It makes me feel closer to the ritual of eating in the same way that it's, it's just fun to know that something has been in your community for a long time. It's valuable in the way a historical landmark is valuable. So I, in that sense, I really do get why people value naturalness. It's why I I grow my own tomatoes.
2: Hmm. But yeah. th- then, I guess, what happens if it's mismarketed? If the idea is, well, I mean, it's natural, meaning that we don't have any sort of pesticides, which is obviously not true. It's just a different form of them. um Let's say, uh, so it's healthier for you, et cetera, right? So let's say if natural isn't used in the context of, oh, well, it's just from your neighbor, but it's used in the context of you should buy our product over, you know, the corporate magnates. Because if you do that, what's going to happen is obviously you're going to get cancer, you're going to get some other sort of poisoning. Like, what would you say to that?
1: I'd say that sucks. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like it when people use simple concepts to, to lie about the relative benefits of a product or to obscure the complexities that go into deciding whether a product is good or not. And I'm not saying that everyone that uses that word natural is consciously lying or trying to deceive. But when you market with myths, you are always going to be deceiving in the sense that myths always flatten out complexities in ways that are not helpful. So instead, I think I'm, I happen to be at least with food and and it's again, complicated because we live in these binaries, right? There's libertarians or there's people that like big government, which is, which is a silly way to think about it. I think there, if only we could let go of that and then you could, you could say things like, well, I'm in favor of lots of regulation here. And I'm in favor of very little regulation here when it comes to, how food is produced and marketed, I think regulation in many cases is a helpful thing. I want there to be regulation of the safety of my food and the pesticides that are put on it and, and, the, and the working conditions for the people that are involved. And you can't, there's, the word natural on a package doesn't replace overseeing and regulating the conditions that people are picking your, your crops under. That you just can't replace that. If there's pesticides being sprayed all over those people, then, then then that's the bad thing. And it's not about it being natural or unnatural. It's about it's about making sure that that those workers' health is is insured by the company and punishing that company when when they don't. Oh,
2: um, can you speak a little bit more on that? Like, how come? Why is it that when we talk about pesticides, that's actually more important than the health of the food?
1: Well, that's it's not that it's more important. It's that there's there's lots of different ways in which food can be good. Mm. Food can be good for your health. Food can be produced in a way that doesn't harm the workers. Mm -hmm. Food can be produced in a way that conserves land area. Mm -hmm. Food can be produced in a way that is good for the environment. And unfortunately, because God is not in charge of the rules, all of those things aren't the same. Sometimes food that is produced in a way that is going to be better for workers might actually be more expensive. Mm-hmm. and it might be worse for the environment, or it might be worse for your health, and the food that's best for your health might be worse for the environment. It, 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 it all, the, these values don't easily line up, and the more conscious we are of the fact that they don't line up, and the more we refuse to try to force them to line up, I think the, 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 better solutions, we're going to get to the problems that we face, ranging from conserving the environment to respecting workers' rights to eating more healthfully, all of which are important.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And, and taking diet specifically, not, not everyone um, does well with the same diet, right? Even if, let's say, uh, somebody was touting, I don't know, the paleo diet as the, you know, as that's the greatest diet, let's say. Uh, maybe it works for one person. They, you know, their body resonates well with it. They feel very healthy. It nourishes them. Another person might say, uh, you know, a vegan diet works the best for me, or another person, um, might try carnivore diet or something like that. And then you might get into a more nuanced conversation about the carnivore diet. Somebody might say, well, where do you get your meat from? Right. Is it ethically sourced meat? Is it the stuff you buy from the grocery store with all the hormones and factory farmed and, all of that. And, um, it it starts to get very complicated and you have to do your due diligence, at least in terms of food. Right. And even be careful because there's so
2: much shit online about, you know, sort of research, quote unquote, that isn't actual research.
0: Sure.
1: And there's, and there's quality of life to think about as well. What, one of the, one of the things that has come to frustrate me a little bit in discussions of which diet is best is the way in which Non-quantifiable factors seem to drop out of the conversation. So one thing that's important is your culture. What mm-hmm. does your culture eat? That, that, that's a very important question. You can't just march into Argentina and talk about. Uh, you know, Argentinians are going to be have a very different attitude towards veganism than mm-hmm. uh, Chinese. You know, certain areas of China, right? If you've got people who are used to Buddhist monks and and ways of eating that are fully vegetarian, and you've got another country that that their singular pride is their beef production, that's a factor too. And that has nothing to do with health or the environment. That's about the value of culture and tradition. Or say your grandma has a dishes that she makes Thanksgiving, and you decide you're going to be vegetarian, and you show up and you piss her off because she made turkey <laughs> for you. I mean, it sounds silly, but, but when we... Yeah. It's actually really important. That kind of thing can really hurt people and when we when we are rigidly pure about the lines that we draw it, it you become so stiff that you break. And yeah. uh, that's to me I understand why purity and Hard and fast rules are attractive. They're easier to follow. Well, if I eat my you know, grandma's Turkey, can I eat my friend's Turkey? And then my, all of a sudden I'm just eating Turkey all the time. But we need to, we need to be, we need to be more flexible, I think, or it's helpful. At least I, 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 I can't say we, I, I it helps me to be flexible. And it's also important to acknowledge enjoyment as a factor in food, just pleasure, or being able to socialize with friends, the the ability to go over to someone's house and not be afraid that they're gonna serve you something you can't eat Is, is in itself something valuable that you have to weigh against other features of your diet.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so in writing the book, what did you want the public to know most about bad science?
1: What I'd actually like the public to understand is that science, in many ways, is is about uncertainty. Mm -hmm. There's a great part in a classic book by Carl Sagan called The Demon Haunted World, Mm -hmm. where he emphasizes the way in which scientific studies come with uncertainty bars or error bars. And there, there are different ways to understand those bars. But what he's trying to say, he's using them as a metaphor, What he's trying to say is in science, we are, we ought to be humble. We acknowledge that there's error built into measurements Mm -hmm. and the engine of scientific inquiry is to always open up even your most basic foundational assumptions and convictions to inquiry and to be excited, not angry when new evidence emerges that challenges those foundational assumptions. The natural-unnatural binary, when you force that onto the world, works against that understanding of science. It is something that does not allow for flexibility. It does not allow you to question your basic assumptions because your basic assumption starts with the idea that natural is good and unnatural is bad. So science at its best is, is a system of questioning. It's humble and it embraces uncertainty paradoxically as the best way of getting at truth. Yeah. That's what I want people to understand, that they are not, they're not weak or ignorant if they admit that they don't know or if they continue to question things. And the other thing I really want people to understand, this is very, very important, it's hard to wrap your mind around, is that being uncertain doesn't mean relativism. It does just because you don't have hard and fast, evil, good foundational rules that you never question doesn't mean that you don't believe in truth or that you don't believe in good and evil. What it means is that you think the best way to get to the truth and the best way to really fight against evil and promote good is to be constantly revising your conceptions of good and evil and the truth, it is to move towards them but always understand that you may be mistaken. That's not relativism. That's, in my mind at least, uh, uh, a dedication to, to truth and a dedication to fighting good and evil. And and mythic certainties like natural good, unnatural bad, I fear often work against that kind of approach to truth and, and moral truth as, as much as scientific truth.
0: Mm. Yeah you know i heard you talk about this on the podcast with rogan as well that there's a certain um a certain strength to certainty uh even though a lot of times it's used for uh bad purposes and it it, it, it would seem like um constantly questioning revising your view of the world uh being adaptive not resisting change um ultimately to me that definitely sounds like the best way to go about it i definitely agree with that wholeheartedly i would love for everyone to think in that sort of way 100 um but there is there is something to people who seem to be so sure of themselves it's it's like um it's like an opiate to to others that they look for that certainty and they get manipulated by that certainty um it's I
1: tremendously, it's tremendously charismatic. Oh, certainty, no. certainty is bound up with charisma. And uh, as someone who's, who, as I said, I'm Rogan, an evangelical agnostic. Uh, I, there are times when certainty is what you need, especially for people who are in pain, or who are suffering, or who are being radically mistreated. That's a time for charisma and certainty about improving your state and fighting the people or forces that oppress you mm-hmm. there are times when certainty is necessary but again as i said on rogan local certainties and global uncertainties there be a moment in history when it's essential to rally behind a charismatic leader and fight an oppressor but i would want i'd want people who are doing that to make sure that they understand that it's a local moment. Of course, as soon as you let that in, everyone's going to think that whatever their moment is is the moment when you need the certainty to fight the evil. <laughs> so so yeah. there's a there's a delicate balance. I'm I'm not sure how to how to help people know where they fit in that balance, but I guess what i would say is as good as it is that there are people who are charismatically certain about what they stand for. I think it's also important for there to be people like me out there who are cautioning against that charismatic certainty. The analogy I use a lot uh, is the gentleman and the jester or the king and the jester. You have a charismatic leader who tells you truths and and you follow their example. That's the gentleman, the noble person, uh, the king. But you also need gestures, gestures out there to mock them and make sure that, that you question what they stand for, that people don't always just mindlessly follow the king or the gentleman, because if you don't have that gesture, then then certainty turns into tyranny.
2: Oh, I love that. And yeah, wow. I, that, yeah. Alan I love.
0: Watts talks about yeah. that too. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so, and what's so cool about that is we could even add in, or kind of in addition to, um, in addition to that sort of thinking, we could talk about even Danny Kahneman and the way he kind of frames system one, which is the intuition, right. And system two thinking, which is the more rational side. So what he would say, and what he would argue is essentially that in kind of on our downtimes, right. When we have the time to sort of think through our problems, right. We can kind of look back on history and learn from it and say, well, okay, here's sort of, this is what happened, right. This was the scenario. Um, Here was the sort of bad reasoning involved, you know, maybe black and white thinking, jumping to conclusions, whatever. Um, Let's say here's where good decisions were made and it it worked out. Here's where bad decisions were made and it didn't. And then you can kind of reason through it and say to yourself, okay, so if I'm ever or if we collectively are in this scenario again, this is how we're going to resolve it. So what's cool about that is sometimes you can prepare for these situations and obviously sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. And so an example that he uses is like in the emergency room. So if you know, you're kind of like a doctor, um, obviously you're prepared, you know, with medical school obviously and um, you're going to make certain decisions and in a sense you are kind of like a tyrant but you're sort of a benevolent tyrant in that aspect which is a good thing obviously but then there are other aspects or other kind of forms of um, I guess other scenarios where that's not the case where obviously with like Donald Trump and so I guess the question would be how do we get people um, especially I guess in the more rural areas who are obviously more afraid because I mean jobs there are kind of like really bad um, or the sort of job market there is pretty low and then you know as obviously as we see now just a sort of health crisis there. And so how do we get them, I guess, and I'm not even I'm just kind of even like just speaking kind of out loud. I this it's a hard question to answer. But I mean, the question is, how do we sort of get them to engage in system two thinking and to sort of accept that, look, you know, you made these decisions because you were afraid. Um, you had a demagogue who was pretty much playing into those fears. It's okay that you made this decision with these decisions, because we understand the context. But now we kind of have to help you to move forward and to acknowledge those mistakes. And to say, okay, how do we make better decisions in the future?
1: well, it's a it's a big question. I mean one thing i'm I'm not as sure I'm not as sure that I'm immune from the kinds of mistakes, uh, cognitive mistakes. I, I think <laughs> let's see how do I put this? I, I wouldn't I don't know i i'm 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 personally uncomfortable s- s- labeling certain I don't know who's wise and who isn't, I guess is what I would say. And everyone has certain kinds of wisdom and certain kinds of blind spots that are easily exploited. And so I'd frame the the issue differently. I guess I would say we're all, especially right now, in in a global interconnected information ecosystem where everyone is, you know, has access to to Facebook and WhatsApp and, and Twitter and TikTok. I'd say that what concerns me most, I, I wouldn't make it about how, how how can I help other people do this so much as how can I improve the information ecosystem that we're all living in. And one of the things I think that I can do is I cannot put binaries and myths into that system unless I've thought extremely hard about that binary or that myth. And I've thought extremely hard about that specific moment that I'm putting it into the system. And I've decided that this is a really important time to put it into the system. And I think we can not be assholes, frankly, uh, to each other online, unless I've thought really hard about that particular moment, somebody's being atrocious online, I've seen them do it many times, they're attacking someone, I say, look, this is a time where I really need to step in and call this person out. Um, We have collectively the power to shape the information, that reaches everybody. I mean, it's a really extraordinary thing. It's democratized in a way that food is not democratized, for example. So I don't think regulating information is is a great way to improve the quality of our information in the way that, for example, having the FDA step in and and check out a factory is actually a pretty good way to make sure that the meat isn't going to make you sick. Um, But it's different with information, and it's different with the ways in which we think. The ways in which we think are now a product a sort of emergent property of a complex system and i think we can all do our part to make that system wiser by being careful and mindful about what we put into it in the same way that we are careful and mindful about the food that we put into our bodies i mean this is something i say to my students is you you would never you would never force feed junk food to your kid or your best friend all day long. But when it comes to our information, collective information ecosystem, I think not, not anybody's fault is, I mean, I do the same thing. You know, it takes a lot for me to realize I'm doing this. We just shovel garbage into it all day long. And, and I don't mean garbage in terms of kitten videos. I kitten videos are kind of great. Um, I, I by gar- you know, they're, they're, they're nice. I mean, you don't want to watch kitten videos all day long, but I think the really dangerous stuff isn't the kitten videos. The really dangerous stuff is the, the stuff that reinforces easy mythic binaries about the world and slots people into villain or hero and, and is cruel or unkind. Um, so that's what I would say. I would say that the way, the way that we can all improve how we think is by being mindful about our individual contributions to the complex system out of which, for better or for worse, our, our, our individual and collective thinking emerges? Interesting. A, long, a long answer, but
0: that's, no, that's. I'm with you. Yeah. Do you think it's a matter of influence via, let's say, conversations like these or when you're with your students, just making those impacts as much as possible? And then, you know, hopefully that has sort of a, a rippling effect. Um, or not hope, you know, take away at it, you know, with time, because for example, a platform, like let's say Rogan's, right. Who has as many people that he's influencing uh, hundreds of millions of people, right. That's unprecedented considering the level of thought that from time to time gets espoused on it. Right. Um, So it's actually, it's actually very interesting. And the fact that people have uh, attention spans longer than we once thought, we used to think it had, everything had to be sound bites, and uh, nobody could sit down for an hour or two or three, you know, and and listen to these long form conversations and, and get value from it. Um, I feel like something's going on right now, which is fascinating.
1: Length length is definitely one feature of uh, so so shorter tends to be simpler just because of you know information constraints, but you can also have you can have a, a book that's a or that a, a five hour rant, you know, <laughs> there's totalitarian dictators. I, if you listen to their speeches, I mean, they just go on. Forever. Or a bench Shapiro. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's <laughs> funny. There's probably, I mean, whoever, you know, the, it, 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 there's garbage that's long, it's easier to make short garbage. But there's also long garbage and there's short stuff that can be really good. For example, changing your mind publicly doesn't take a long time, but man, is that powerful what a what a thing to say i'm sorry or i was wrong mm-hmm. two words three words that are not junk information they they put into this collective system the 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 possibility and the value of of change mm-hmm. and so those are very very short things that we can do. I mean, that's that's something I would encourage everyone to do. I and mean, this is a project I'm working on now is this idea of what ultra processed information is, which is something I talked about briefly on Rogan and how we can start fighting it. And one of the things we can do is you can say to yourself, well, have I ever admitted in an online conversation that I was wrong? Mm, right. Maybe I should do that. And it feels, <laughs> it actually feels hard. It's hard in the way that exercising if you haven't exercised for years, starting up again—it just feels painful. Just the thought of it like turns your stomach. But then you can get used. to, You can all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, no, I got that wrong. Or someone points out points out something new instead of being like, you know, like denying it. Right? This is this is something Kahneman to talk about. Right? There's the right. instead of in you know getting over your sunk cost in your own ego, right, is an exercise you can do that's important. Um, And that's, so those are things you can also put into the system. And I'm, I, I will try, try and fail and keep trying. Um, Those are things I want to do too. admit when I'm wrong, admit um, when, and, and even, I mean, there was one time I'll give an example. I know not have been talking a while, but some, some guy, I I tweeted something about uh, how it doesn't matter if kids lose a year of education, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: except insofar as. We, we measure things in terms of age, which is a weird way to measure stuff, right? Why, like, who cares? You know, some people are ready for a second. You know, I skipped a grade. Someone else doesn't skip a grade. It doesn't really matter, right? Does it matter whether you graduate from high school at 16 or 17? Is that that big a deal? So I tweeted something to that effect. And some, somebody wrote, you know, you're a blue check idiot. I can't believe these idiots with the blue checks next to their name Yours, you know, your age really does matter when you're young, cognitive development is, is important. And a one year between six and seven really is important biologically. I can't believe these, you know, an idiot like you ever gets to talk anywhere.
2: That's and, a vague comment. And,
1: now, here's the thing, they were right. Not about the idiots with the blue checks, I hope, but <laughs> they, were right that, they were right that actually there is something about a year when you're young and, and it's worth thinking about child development. When is a good time to learn a language? When is a good time to learn math? Not everything needs to be learned young, but it, it's true that it, that skipping a year, if you want to learn music, if you want to learn language could actually, make, could actually make a difference biologically. And I was sort of hand-waving that away. And it was this moment where I was like, oh my God, I hate like this, this ad. I was so mad, you know, in the way that you're mad about internet people. And I was just like, look, that was a good point. And it, 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 it took, it took a lot. It took a lot, but I, I, I feel, I'm proud of it. I'm proud I did that. And I feel like I put some good, like vibes (laughs) into the, into the world that, 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 that were helpful and it made me feel better. It developed a kind of spiritual muscle in me that's shrunken and shriveled and atrophied, but I think needs, needs to grow and, 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 and get stronger.
2: But also in your defense, I mean, I would have responded the same way because that's not the way you make a comment. If you want to sort of, you know, because a lot of these people on Twitter, as I'm sure you know, I mean, I'm sure you get this a lot, obviously, because you do have a blue check and, you know, you're really active on it. They pretty much, it's a fight. It's a battle. It's like, there's no dialectic there. There's pretty much, there's a, yeah, they want to sort of I didn't. I didn't
1: just, I didn't just say it was a good point. I said, (laughs) that was a good point. Not the part where you were a dick to me, but the part about, the biology of children, but I did that. I mean, I said it again. So I did, I, you're right. And I actually did want to call that out, but, but I got, I, I calmed myself down and I was like, how can I best contribute to this conversation? Well, I want to point out that it's not cool to attack people, but they did make a good point. How can I do that in a way that, I don't know. There's this, hell there's this bookmark somewhere. I don't know. It's like Thomas Jefferson's 10 rules. I don't know where it is. One mm-hmm. of his rules is like count to 10 like if you're angry, count to ten before you say something, if you're very angry, count to hundred uh, this is a pretty good rule, you know uh maybe increase the numbers, but yeah, so you're right, that's not the way to respond but i i I really do try on Twitter when someone is unless someone's a professional troll because I think those people are really dangerous and and bad um, and those are people who i don't I, I think I think about it a lot and i don't like I don't like being mean on twitter um those are people who i don't I don't have a lot of patience for. Um, people who are deliberately and deceptively ginning up controversy because that's what they thrive on, and then sort of being like, "What? Who me?" I didn't say anything controversial. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but if it's just someone online, you know, trying to get trying to get in a fight, I really do my best to interact with those people in a way that makes them change. And come around to the fact that I'm there in good faith, and I'm willing to talk with them, and I don't want to fight, but I am willing to listen to them, even if they think I'm, you know, bleeding heart liberal, or if they think I'm not sympathetic enough to liberals, you know, because I, you know, it depends on the issue, right? But I, I, I really try to do that. And that's, that's important. I think it's fun. There's nothing better than turning a troll into an earnest conversation partner. It just feels great. It really does,
0: and it, and it takes some tremendous strength to to say, oh, you know, I, I was wrong. And plus, how how often do you see that actually on Twitter? It's actually unique, and it's it's actually refreshing if you see somebody it actually, yeah, I, I was wrong about that. And then maybe they do say something back, and like you said, you just converted somebody from a almost like basically a troll to like a yeah,
1: or if it's just someone who's fighting, you convert someone from angry to to open. And that's God. If we could, if we could do more of getting people from angry to and I, and, and I want to emphasize because this is really important. This happened with food too. I didn't realize this when I wrote my first book. I was a complete asshole. Um, I didn't understand. I'm I'm like am I'm I'm lucky. I don't experience any intestinal difficulties. I don't struggle with my weight. I find it fairly easy. You know, I mean, everyone has to restrain what they eat. You know, but like I've, it's not like I'm constantly stressing out about that. Um, other people are not in that situation. Other people are struggling with health problems, with weight problems, with fitness problems. And I just didn't think about the kind of pain they were in. And so it was easy for me to just question their rituals and hand wave away the conclusions that they had come to. And so this the same is true, honestly, for people that are angry online. I think often that anger comes out of pain or insecurity, Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people, the blue check guy, for example, maybe he had some terrible professor who was extremely cocky. And said something to him like, "You're never gonna make it. In the, you know, you're never gonna make it in academia. You you might as well just find a trade or something. I don't know. You know, some some horrible person. People say stuff like that all the time. It's crazy. Um, maybe that's what. Maybe he was yelling at at that professor through me. You know, I don't know. And so I try. I really try to keep that in mind when 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 people are yelling or punching. Is that is there's a lot of pain in the world." And it's easy for me not to yell or punch because I'm that pains not being inflicted on me.
2: Yeah. And often the personalization is one of those cognitive distortions where we sort of take something personally from a person that doesn't necessarily know us.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And I would say just from a clinical perspective, like what I find in therapy sessions is that essentially the two kind of main facets for me, at least of therapy are number one, being able to admit your mistake, because what that does is it makes it easier for that, you know, the next person, your client to say the same. And then the other thing is to be able to say like, dude, it's okay that you made a mistake. It's not the end of the world. I don't think any less of you. The world probably wouldn't think any less of you. And I think those two simple things are so important because sometimes what we do is, um, it, well, I mean, in therapy and other sort of academic disciplines, we sort of sometimes also overcomplicate things too. And so sometimes, in my opinion, modeling in itself is usually not usually, but sometimes at least enough. Enough to get the person to see that, oh, if this person can do it and I really value him, then I might be able to do that too.
1: There's a there's a bit of a there's a bit of a problem that goes back to something you guys were saying earlier about the charisma of certainty. And mm. this was something where I just disagreed with Rogan, frankly, um, and I think he's wrong. He has risen to where he is. In part, my opinion, at least about him, I don't know him too much as a person, but I got to hang out with him and, and talk with him. And he seems like a genuine guy. Um, I, you know, People may disagree with him about stuff, but he really does seem like a nice guy, a genuine guy. I think he cares about being honest. And so he it's easy if you have become as successful as he is to think that being that way is the way to be successful and that if you're not that way, you will fail because he's got survivorship bias, right? He, he has made it to the absolute top. So everyone who's not being honest around him is gonna be less successful than he is just because everyone is less successful than he is. But the truth is you can make it to the top by never admitting you're wrong. You can admit, make it to the top by being cruel to people all the time. And in fact, it looks to me, unfortunately, like those are more effective ways of quickly rising according to the criteria that people value, financial criteria or followers. Um, And so that's, that's problematic. One of the things we can also do as participants in this information ecosystem is to actively choose people who are humble as the people that we follow and the people we support and to not always reward the charisma of certainty. That's difficult. We see it in politics all the time, where a politician who admits they were wrong or they changed their mind is frequently accused of being weak, which is crazy if you think about that. They, they, don't, um, they
0: don't pick a side, right?
1: Yeah, they don't pick a side. Now, I understand we don't want politicians to just change their mind based on whatever they think there is going to get them votes. Right. But that's a different thing from a politician changing their mind because they've grown as a human being. And we we really need to make room for those kinds of virtues in our in 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 our choices of the people that we look up to
2: Right. And then often, unfortunately, like when it comes to experts, so the public doesn't know whether it's a question that can't be answered or whether it's a question that the expert can't answer. So from what I was reading the other day, there was a really great article on AI magazine about this on experts. I don't exactly remember the author's name, but um, he essentially mentioned that, look, sometimes experts will actually say something that's actually not true because for them, the uncertainty of, um, well, not that the uncertainty, the, um, I guess for them, what would be the certainty of saying something false would be actually worse than saying like, so it would be worse than, um, mm-hmm. No, let me not, not say this right. Um, for my memory, it was so they would essentially say something that might not necessarily be true because for them it's worth taking the chance over saying something over saying I don't know. Essentially, so for some experts, because you know the public obviously doesn't know whether it's the expert's fault or the fact that this question is unanswerable, they'll just gladly say, oh well, here's the answer, and they'll kind of roll the dice because what happens is the author was arguing in the long term is that these experts, especially if they already have a solid background, they're going to be counted on in the future anyway. So if they just kind of like you know roll the dice once in a while it's not that big of a deal.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, we're all all human when it comes to this sort of thing, even the experts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think when it comes to mass audiences, in terms of having that certainty, picking a side, especially when it comes to politics, that's incredibly important because apparently a mass audience, whenever you give out a nuanced point, it opens up too much of an, uh, of an area for them to disagree with you on. That's why you have to say like these simple, short things that kind of uh, grab people's attention, whatever side you're picking. Um, the thing that I think, uh, and you guys talked about it a little bit on the podcast as well. So, I mean, I'm not trying to defend Rogan per se, but what I think he was saying, and you kind of said it too back to him, you said like, do you mean, uh, you know, having integrity and in all this is, is better like in the long game? as you know maybe when you're talking to like a group of people around you or something like that I think uh, if it had gone further I think that's probably what he was referring to like for example if he's with his family I'm sure if he was being if he was lying and manipulating like his children or something like that even if he was certain yeah. he could get certain things done but they wouldn't respect him in the long term and, and in terms of leadership they wouldn't you know but I'm I think it's just because it didn't get uh dissected enough he didn't get to things like that uh i love that you you bring up family
1: i think the family is really important though what i what i what i want to be clear about is that when it comes to a smaller information ecosystem that of your family or of your own psyche I don't think those things are going to work out at all. I don't think being stiff and unhumble and charismatically certain is going to work out. I, I think integrity is important. Those, are, These are the kinds of people where you learn that their families sucked, or that they weren't good parents or whatever it happens to be, you know. Um, I. I don't think it works in those situations. Unfortunately, and for good reasons, that's not how we evaluate public figures. That's not how we choose who to follow because the, the, their successes aren't with those kinds of communities. We don't, I mean, think it would actually be really cool if there were just heroes who's like really great parent, like this person, just great, terrific parent, great friend, but that's not, that's not, it works in our, in our own lives. And we have people like that. I'm sure both of you know people who are just unbelievably good human beings. They're mm-hmm. unbelievably good human. It doesn't mean they're necessarily super successful in their job. It doesn't mean even that they're necessarily super happy. Although I like to believe that they go together. We know those people. Those just aren't the people that command enormous power politically. That's not how you get there. And a part of that, and this goes back to the pain thing, is that people feel powerless. I think, generally speaking, we're all very tiny. The world is very big. And and so we want a champion. We want someone who we feel is fighting for us and is strong and is stable. I get that. I get that. It just makes me sad. I mean, a good example of this person, you know, someone I would pick out, and I don't like picking on people generally, but I think this guy deserves to be picked on a little, um, is is Nassim Taleb, who has an enormous following of people. He's very smart guys, says very smart things, wrote Black Swan, lots of interesting things about statistics. He's an asshole. He never <laughs> admits he's wrong. He's out there brawling because he wants to. He's, he's not respectful of his interlocutors. And that that has brought him a certain kind of success. I think it has attracted followers to him. It makes it fun to watch him in certain ways, and fun to watch conversations that he has. But but for me at least, this is just a terrible example to set. It's a it's a terrible kind of vibe to send into our information ecosystem. If he's saying smart things, there's better there's better kinder ways to say them. And, uh, you know, for a guy who wants to create systems that are resilient and not fragile, his own stiffness of attitude, it seems to me, works against the values that he seems to be cultivating when it comes to governance or economic systems.
2: And FYI, this guy is probably one of the most self-actualized people I've ever met. For me? Yeah. (laughs) So see, that's the humility right there. So yeah, we, yeah.
1: <laughs> and friendship friendship too it's an important thing the ability to say that someone else is self actualized is itself a
0: form of self actualization
2: yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> I don't know. I shrug. I, I don't know. I just try See? to be nice, nuanced, and all that. Well, I mean, so
2: what's so cool about like his platform? So he has a platform called Ego Ends Now, and it's sort of about this, about sort of fostering these dialogues where people are pretty much humble, and different people from different areas are able to bring in their expertise and share different ideas, learn from one another, and obviously also admit their mistakes at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's it's important. Yeah, it is. I, I, that's that's why. I mean, that's one of the things I learned about when i was researching natural honestly is yeah. that things were just so much more complicated than i had originally thought and that my own sort of dismissive understanding of people that value what's natural was was a was a bad place to be and i'm i'm really grateful for what i learned from that book not just because of what i learned about naturalness and and hopefully what i can contribute to people's thinking about what it is to value something that's natural or in, in sports or wherever it happens to be, but also for how it forced me to back off of my own mythic binary thinking. That was really helpful. Um, and to realize that the battle I wanted to pick was not against people that believe in naturalness necessarily, that that if I'm gonna pick a battle, I wanna pick a battle against the kind of, the the, the ways of communicating that I think are are dangerous. And poisonous. That's something I feel strongly about in a way that I don't anymore about what people, what people's attitude towards natural foods is. I mean, I, I look back on that. And I'm just like, really? Like, <laughs> it's going to be fine. It doesn't really matter if someone irrationally loves natural foods. But if they're like mean people, that's bad. That's much worse. Better to work on that <laughs> than than the other thing.
0: I think you said it if I'm not mistaken, it's better to be kind than right
1: i yeah well that's I, yeah I took that from a I took that from uh from, a from this book wonder oh. um which itself was quoting uh some psychologist i think um yeah the 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 teacher in this book puts quotes on the board every day, and one of the quotes they put on the board was it's better to be kind than right and the first time I read it, I was like, that's ridiculous it's to be to be right is to be kind uh you know it's sort of a and I still you know, there's a part of me, you know, I'm an academic, I, I, like <laughs> to be God, right. I, I don't want to be wrong, um, you can be kind and right at the same time, but there are lots of ways to be right that are not kind. And sometimes being right and being kind takes a lot more effort. Figuring out how to be right and also kind is really important. So I, 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 the way I think about that quote now is, is not, yeah, it is, a, it is in a sense a false dichotomy, but better, better to be slowly or thoughtfully right and kind than to be right as quickly as possible, or something like that, or to be right yeah. reflexively. It's just easy. It's easy to tell I me, mean, you know, especially if you have a kid. You know, I've got a kid. It's very easy to be right. Kids are wrong all the time but it's almost always cruel (laughs) and and it takes effort to, to be right and to be nice.
2: Yeah. And there's this great story that I use um, from Danny Kahneman, essentially, where he tells the students, he says, look, don't try to be smart and don't try to prove how smart you are by telling me how wrong your other classmate is, but tell me how right he is. So what he talks about kind of going back to the idea of dialectic is when we're arguing, what we're looking for is what's right about the other person's argument. Obviously, you can do both. And I mean, that's sort of like the, I guess, the pinnacle you would try to do both. But the idea is we're all too quick to sort of point out what's wrong. So like just a quick example, a friend of mine, so she's an intellectual and academic. Um, so she did uh, some, she's, she did a talk recently and she said something along the lines of, well, you know, humans are not animals, which is obviously for the most part true. But of course, some asshole, in the crowd was like, oh, excuse me. Like, how did you get your credentials? Humans are animals. And it's like, dude, like really, Uh, this is not, what is the point of that? You didn't need to say that. Like she, she understands that she was making a point that had nothing. Well, not nothing, but didn't wasn't as relevant to your statement as you think it is. But there are always going to be people who kind of want to show the other person up and say, oh, well, let me find what's wrong about it. So I really like the idea of dialectic first looking for what's right about the argument and sort of like um, pretty much altering it in whatever way you see
0: fit. And Alan, if you have time for this, uh, please let us know if we're going. But uh, I wanted to ask how, how some charlatans abuse what is natural in order to further uh, their own agenda. Uh, for, for instance, either in relation to, uh, like for example, the, the cancer example in your book um would you mind talking about that if it's okay
1: sure naturalness like like any quasi theological term has a lot of power and i can't speak to the motivations of a specific charlatan sometimes charlatans i think set out deliberately to deceive sometimes charlatans just want success and they come to believe whatever it is that will allow them to be successful. So in this sense, I think Dr. Oz, I don't think he I don't think he goes home from his show and says, Oh, we got another, we got some more people with Reiki folks like those idiots. (laughs) I think, I think he just wants people to like him and he wants to be open-minded. And so he just sort of came to believe whatever was most useful for his purposes. Either way, the the invoking what's natural allows people to sidestep science, for example. So you don't need scientific justifications of whatever it is that you're doing if you just attribute it to naturalness. If it comes to curing cancer, you can say, well, this is natural. Ergo, it's better. You don't have to show people evidence for it. And you tap into people's alienation from nature, especially when they're sick they want to be in touch with life-giving forces. Even if you're not, you know, again, I, I, I don't like the religious-non-religious divide because I think there's lots of areas, including naturalness, where those the, that distinction is not so clear. When you're sick, when you're dying, you want to feel life and aliveness and a, a medicine with a green leaf on it or a medical, quote-unquote, medical retreat with a lot of plants around is going to feel existentially good. And so, naturalness helps sell otherwise unsubstantiated interventions by tapping into those powerful associations. Mm.
2: All right, absolutely. So Alan, final questions
0: then before we go? Um, Yeah, um, so All right, scratch it. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ask this instead. If, if we wanted to follow you on social media or if we wanted to find the book or follow your new podcast, how could we find you?
1: So podcast is on hold, although I appreciate, I appreciate your, your plugging it. Unfortunately, we just didn't, we haven't had enough time to get it together, even though we did have an episode out there, but for social media at Alan Levinovitz, um, it's just my name. I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, my book is available Basically, any online bookseller, natural, and I, I, I think what I like about the book, obviously, I wrote it, so I like the book. But uh, <laughs> <different> <laughs> uh, and, Yes. Each of the each of the chapters addresses a different topic. So if there's something that you're not particularly interested in, you can just skip to the next chapter. And if there's something you're very interested in, that chapter will speak to you. So if you're interested in sports, there's a sports chapter. If you're interested in economics, there's an economics chapter. So uh, I, I think, I hope in that way the book is is accessible and has something for everyone.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much sure. for coming. That was so much.
1: enlightening, man. That oh, was a great interview. I really appreciate it. I uh, wish you guys all the
0: best. Absolutely. You, too. you too, Take man. care. Talk soon. All
2: right,
1: take it easy. Bye.
0: All right.
2: That was awesome. That was a really good episode. Yeah.
0: So if you guys want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter like subscribe hit the bell hit the bell bell
2: on youtube and then also you can find us at the o4l online network at o4lonlinenetwork.com on top on the the STM podcast section on the left side. And then also check out our guy, Vegas Media Designs on Instagram, he takes care of all of our awesome artwork. And then also be on the lookout for a future podcast called Heart of the Outlaw. That's gonna be with Mm -hmm. our guy, Andy O'Farrell. So he's gonna have a lot of different interviews with different like um, hip hop artists. And I'm assuming they're gonna be sort of other people on the platform too, I can't say for sure. But yeah, be on the lookout for that.
0: All right guys, thanks so much for watching and see you guys next time.